Hello and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael, Mark Antonio, and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, here in the high plains of Wyoming, uh, we are awesome. How are you doing there in Nashville? Oh, I'm finer than a hair on a frog's backside. And the fact that I can That's fine. That is fine. And the fact that I could say that means that... Uh, these here uh, good old boys, Don Gone, rubbed off on me, and I've picked up a little bit of the South. Not not so much that I've had grits this morning or anything, uh, just enough that I could say that. I'll be honest, I got halfway through that sentence, and I wasn't sure if it was going to work out, but it did. So, uh, <laughs> no, we're good. We are good. Uh, this is Thanksgiving week, and we are getting ready to uh, to travel to go see my dad, which is further south in South Carolina. And we are taking uh, two dogs and the turtle with us. And if you've seen my dogs, you know one of them is nearly 90 pounds. And uh, he is a giant toddler. So, uh, But because I have a preteen, he is actually one of the easiest members of the family. The dog is actually easier to travel with. The dog never complains. Like, there's, there's no attitude from the dog. He's just happy to be there. So uh, anyway... Um, so yeah, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving, getting ready for the trip, and uh, it's all good. The family season is upon us, and when the family season is upon us, going and seeing everyone, you come to realize some things. There are some things that you are very much uh, powerless over, but you know what? We almost skipped over where people can find us, so before I get ahead of myself there, Father Joseph uh, obviously, all of our listeners know that they can find us on Anchor FM, which is our main uh, our main platform, which shares out over iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on social media at On the Battlefield Podcast. But are there any other venues where we might be found by those seeking to find us? Well, here in the wilds of uh, Wyoming, sure. it may be difficult to find, but Spotify and uh, Rumble and YouTube for those on the battlefield shorts or OTBSs, uh, there will be, as of this week, seven of those that shared time between you and me. So check those out and, uh, let's roll on into this, uh, father. So in, in the language of addiction, uh, why don't you tell everybody the idea that, that we're going to start with, uh, from, from AA. Well, that's well, yeah, and that's kind of why I wanted to start with what we're powerless over in our family. You come to realize that you're powerless over a whole lot. Um, you come to realize that you're powerless over a whole lot during the family season of Thanksgiving and so forth, because you're you're powerless over what kind of family you're born into. You're powerless over your uncle's uh, politics or your sister's beliefs. Um, you're powerless over a lot of things. And the very first step, and the very first step in uh, the 12 steps of AA is not the way most people phrase it. Most people phrase it, they'll say, well, you know, the first step uh, in getting help is admitting you have a problem. And that's kind of a paraphrase. And in all fairness, right, if, if we're uh, if we're speaking sort of in engineering terms for all practical purposes, it does what it needs to do. Um, and in all fairness, it is not a, an entirely inaccurate paraphrase, but it is not an accurate um, representation of what the first step actually says. Because the first step doesn't actually say anything about admitting. It says we came to realize that we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And I think on here, we've talked about uh, the unmanageability of life, the way that sin causes all of our lives to be unmanageable. And you're going to see this, right? You're going to see this when you go home for Thanksgiving or when people come over for Thanksgiving. All the various personality conflicts, all the resentments, all the, uh, all the pettiness, all the backstabbing, all the gossip. None of those people might be alcoholics, but it gets pretty unmanageable, Ricky Tick, right? Like there's a lot of people in there with some unmanageable lives. And from a certain perspective, you might be one of them. Like you might look and go, you know what? Maybe I'm mad at 
ex relative for going on X rant, but they're not too happy with my rant about topic Y. And from their perspective, my life looks pretty unmanageable as well. So we've talked about that though in past podcasts. What I want to talk about today is that very front half of that step where it says, we came to realize that is very different than admitting you have a problem. Because admitting you have a problem is two or three steps downstream of realizing that you are powerless over anything, alcohol, your family, whatever, and your life is unmanageable. To realize something that, that is that 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 it's it's to to use language from our own spiritual tradition as Orthodox Christians, it is but mere steps away from saying, I have had an epiphany. It has been revealed to me. This truth has shone forth because the truth is there before it shines forth. Long before you realize that you are powerless and your life has become unmanageable, the people around you have already realized it. They know the consequences have become piling up in one form or another. Uh, even if it is just missed appointments and your and a little extra weight around your midsection or what have you, even if it's that light, it's still beginning to pile up. But for you to realize, for you to cognize that uh, there is a data set here which wishes you to recognize it, hey, um, life is unmanageable. You are powerless to continue down this road and and live that you you know that if the way before you my son is the way of life and the way of death you have set foot on the path of death and are trotting it and if you do not turn back things look bleak so i mean that's the very first step to realize like i mean you're sitting at that dinner table it's like hey my life is unmanageable or hey i am powerless uh, realizing that is a first step and realizing is a tricky thing because it's not enough to intellectually say, here's the data set. Here's what it means. It, it's realizing it is something else. Realizing it is, it, is it's, it's a little bit more and there's a call to action. I, I'm having kind of, my, my friend, I'm having kind of trouble putting that into terms. Help me out a little bit on realizing some of the terms close to that. And like, what does realizing really impel us to do? Well, they're transitive verbs. So they, there's, an, there's an object involved with these, right? Whether it's the word recognize, cognition to know so there's there's information either from an object outside of us bringing this to our attention and 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 or or the something from within that is allowing us to see it from past experience like for example a story in my own life i don't remember if i've ever told this story before or not but i was i was in my late teens and i was having a a very bad summer. So I, not summer, but year. And I decided to go stay with one of my aunts in, in Minnesota for the summer. And within a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, all the things that I had intended to leave behind me, all the things that I had intended to get away from were all of a sudden in my life. At which point I recognized that I was indeed the problem. That that nonsense in my life had gone from one place to the other because I had moved from one place to the other. And I went back home and dealt with the problems that I was having. And and that was a big changing point in, in my own personal life because I came to realize that I had a problem. And that problem was me. <laughs> so... Uh, but where where does that information come from? How is that how is that uh, transitive verb? It's like does that information come from within? Does it come from from without? Is it equally made apparent to us from both 
end of that spectrum. You know, it's like, what, so what does that mean that we recognize something either as a human, as an addict or a Christian? Well, I think just to jump in, because I, I know you had some really interesting things to say on the verb itself, but I, I think that one of the big things that, that, that it comes from, and your story highlights this so well, is that it comes from experience. This is not the sort of thing that you get off a spreadsheet. It's more the kind of knowledge that you get by setting a foot on the path and saying, okay, I'm going to try to get away from this stuff by going somewhere else in Wisconsin. And oops, uh, experience is teaching me, life is teaching me that uh, perhaps the problem is not what I thought it was. Um, but then you're impelled to do something with that information. So I, I'm sorry to jump in. Tell, tell us more. But I, I think I think the fact that it's it's grounded in uh, getting the hands dirty is part of what makes this uh, cognition cognition. It's the action. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that the actual recognizing or cogn- cognizing or realizing or knowing is the action. I think the action is what you do with what you've realized. Like I could have very easily stayed in Minnesota and said, well, now all these people are jerks and just gone on and and encountered the same issues again somewhere else or continued to, to deny the fact that it was largely me or entirely me that was the problem. So what, so when we recognize something, when we see that there's a problem, what do we do with it? That's where the action I think comes from and and we as Christians have a, have a huge leg up because our our experience isn't only our experience it, it, it can also be the experience of the church it can be the experience of the of the scriptures that that can inform us and help us recognize what what the actual good is and the direction that we ought to go with that action but the the action is what we do with the thought or with the recognition, I think. What do you think? Absolutely. So um, I, I know that sponsors within programs of recovery are fond of saying that it is a program of action. Um, and there's another dictum, and this this actually made its way into this past Sunday sermon for me. There is the dictum within a within uh, AA that you can you <clears throat> how does it go? You cannot, you cannot think yourself into right action, but you can act yourself into right thinking. You know, that, that I, and, and, and this, that actually proves true, not just theologically, but also neurologically, that the, that the, the habits, the exercise, the headspace, the things that you feed create more neural synapses and your brain is more likely to go down those roads. So if you, uh, so you really can. Uh, your mood, you know, your mood is not some intellectual separate thing from your biology. Like what you what you are doing physically uh, can can what you're doing physically consistently can play a big part in the kind of headspace that you're in consistently. So um, it can be. Yeah. So it's that psychosomatic thirty days to to ingrain a habit sort of idea. Kind of, I mean, to a degree, and 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 the science is, you know, there there are people rethinking the number of days, like how and, but but that's really not the point, right? Uh, but yeah, it is that kind of thing. Like, hey, um, if you're willing to consistently work, you can act yourself into right thinking, um, you know. And the saints say something interesting. Uh, I think it's Saint Paisios. He says, if you want to, if you want love. And you feel, and you do not feel love. Do the works of love, and the Holy Spirit will see your intention and grant you uh, that gift. So, you know, in other words, it's saying, yeah, well, if you if you cognize, if you recognize that this is where you're headed, where you need to be, um, and then you take the kingdom of heaven by force, and you say, I, you know, despite the fact that my feelings say otherwise, we're going here, and guess what? The thoughts and feelings catch back up. If you, if we do, our, our modern society has it backwards. If you wait for your feelings to be all lined up like tumblers in a lock, you will die unrepentant and miserable, and your life will be unmanageable. 
You and you'll be and you'll be a garbage friend, a terrible employee, a bad husband and wife. I mean, or wife, because we have ladies who listen to our program too. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, you know why? Because all any any relationship or any endeavor long term demands a commitment that goes far beyond how you feel today. Uh, that's why Jocko Willink, who we haven't quoted in quite some time, um, is fond of saying that inspiration is. Um, inspiration is a waste of time. He's like, because you need to, you, he's like, discipline will be your best friend because you need to get up and do the the hard right thing when you don't feel inspired. He's like, after a week, you're not going to feel inspired. You need to keep going. Um, and I think even, gosh, what, even Mike Tyson, like he, he once confessed that he was miserable training, but he's like, be miserable for a minute now, be a champion forever. I mean, but that's the idea. It's like the, if you're if you're waiting for those feeling, if you're waiting for the stars to magically align and your feelings to you know line up like a tumbler in a lock before you do anything, good luck. Life is over. Have we have we have, as Christians over spiritualized the Christian life, and has has society become increasingly gnostic? That's what I hear you saying. No, no, I think it's quite the opposite. I think we've become increasingly materialistic and we've over-emotionalized and there's a difference. So the spirit, right? The spirit refers to the spirit refers to that content which is transcendent. It refers to that which transcends the bounds and the categories of mere material uh, existence. It's the metadata behind everything. Um, so, and, and then as Christians, when we speak of spiritual, we really mean, you know, holy, like the Holy Spirit, right? Is that what we mean though? We should. Or is it just kind of like that weird, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious thing? Well, I'm speaking in ideal terms, right? Roger. So ideally, ideally we should mean the Holy Spirit. Ideally, we should mean in Christ. Ideally, we should mean that we are experiencing the divine realities of our faith and the reality of living as members of the divine council when we're in church and when we're in our families and our our little, you know, every little home iconostasion should be a small harmawid, a small mount of assembly whereby this little portion of the divine council meets and prays. Like, that's that's what we should be experiencing. Now, we have mistaken emotion for genuine spirituality. And that's the problem. So we have over materialized. So we treat only as real that which we can quantify. And guess what? Emotions are quantifiable. I'm feeling really sad. Go, go to good. Take, I'm feeling really sad. How, how sad could take, take a psych thing at a hospital intake. You know, it's like a uh, scale of one to 10. How sad are you right now? You can write, you could check a number. I'm about a six or a four or two. I was a one yesterday. I'm not nine today. You can quantify it. Feelings are quantifiable. There is a, uh, I, I read a, a sports psychology book once that postulated very well that emotions are, physical how because ultimately they, they they ultimately they break down into chemical and electrical processes within the body which means you can affect them through chemical and physical processes so it's like the the, the trainer looking at that was like great there's a lot we can do about your headspace because it's very physical so guess what that makes us if we're making our religious life based on emotion, that makes it more material. That makes it more materialistic because ultimately chemicals and electrical impulses are material things that can be quantified. And the spirit, a genuine spiritual life is something else. So actually hyper-emotionalism is more materialistic, not less. I never thought of it from that perspective. And when I when I said what I was hearing you say was that that we might be overly spiritual is that we we take this information and we we want it just to be in the spiritual realm like I want to have emotional love or this spiritual sort of love for other people without actually like living in a, a painful life of action you know but 
if we have if we have sin in our life and we or we have you know an addiction to a passion or or to a chemical substance how how does acting on on what we've realized you know so we have we have an epiphany like wow i'm i am this or i'm struggling with this or that how how can we best deal with acting appropriately with that in your opinion well first you got to decide do you want to live right what do you do like in in, in and and that that's really that's really the thing you know so you you realize okay um uh, i'm powerless here my life has become unmanageable do i want to live i there are people i'm i'm very sad to report i mean look you know i i've worked with a lot of people in recovery and there are sadly there there are individuals and and they deserve our prayers and our love and our our help our genuine the right kind of help and they deserve people who are um kind and empathetic to them but there are people who do choose to throw their hands up and say I, I feel like I'm too far gone. I'm just going to ride it out and give in. Like who just say, I'm not, I'm, I can't be bothered. It doesn't work for me. I, I can't like that, that, that feel that who, who feel unequal to the task. And could anybody overcome it? Yes. Anybody could not everybody does. Could anybody successfully repent, right? Yes, anybody could. Not everybody does. And it really depends on how you choose to respond to that revelation, to that epiphany. I'm powerless over going the wrong places on the internet. I'm powerless over um, losing my cool when my preteen mouths off once again right? I'm powerless over feeling nervous about our finances, you know, whatever it is, I'm just giving examples that happen to everybody. And how you respond to that is what makes all the difference. Um, and and the, the, the language of both repentance and recovery is you don't do it alone. You know, you've got the divine council, you've got the church, you've got the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly, or you've got your sponsor, you've got your program. You've There's nothing in scripture that says, go be a lone ranger. It's really not in there. That's dejection. Um, I mean, that that is, that is so analogous to Satan whispering messianic scriptures to Christ in the desert. Like, yeah, I am powerless over these things in and of myself. Yeah, I am subject to my passions. I have habituated myself to these sins. Yes, yes, I am powerless in and of myself. However, I'm not alone. And it's not definitive. Correct. Yeah, Satan, we've said this multiple times. He is the accuser and the, the, and the deceiver. Right? He deceives and he accuses. Listen, just stay down, Father Michael. You're yeah. you're you are verb. You're you are ontologically an alcoholic, and there's no changing that. So just go back to the bottle, please. Yeah. Yeah. And well, he'll say that about he'll say that about anything. Darn tootin'. Yeah, you're 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 a selfish, hothead, egoist. That's just who you are. And 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 let your, and and if you and if you don't address it, if you're not repentant about it, man, your marriage will fall apart, and your kids will be miserable and grow up with a terrible example. The devil would just have you stay down and wallow in that. Whereas Christ is going to look and say, "This is what's on the plate for you. You got to deal with your you got to deal with your egotism, your selfishness, and your temper, and your drinking. All right, whatever. That's what's on the plate. But if you will deal with it if you will turn and face these things. Not only will I give you my grace to overcome and be stronger at the end of the battle, but 
you're going to show your kids how to overcome these things. Your life will be better. You will be a happier, stronger man at the end of it. Um, and this will that struggle will be the road of salvation. And that that's it's it, it it's not definitive. And that's 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 really the thing. Um, I think with I, I, I th- gosh I had a thought and it left, but the, just the reality is it's it's not definitive. It's like, okay, and what? It's like, yeah, that that's there, and what? What do you do about it is really the important thing. Um, and that's that's what it hinges on. The the lack of def- that definitiveness has um, caused me to remember that I said the word ontolo- ontological. If you don't know what that word means, it's the realm of uh, philosophy that deals with the nature of being. So, yeah. and... And that's one of the starkest differences between Eastern and Western theology for me is one of the things that drew me towards Eastern theology is that, that we see man ontologically connected to death, but not sin from Adam, that, that I, that my will, that I, that I have a choice, that I'm not defined by my choices other than how, who I align myself to covenantally. Am I, am I covenantally bound to my sin through my own choices? Do I bind myself to my sin or do I bind myself to my Savior? That, that's really the only ontological thing that happens uh, for us other than being connected to death, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I, I would agree with you on that. I think within Western theology, the ramification of making death too closely linked to man's nature uh, it it leads to some very in, uh, some not only some unfortunate conclusions but some incorrect ones. Whereas at least whereas at least within the the Orthodox East we've maintained the early Christian view that hey ultimately this um, mortal realm that has come upon us because our fallen condition is also foreign to us, and so in order for it to uh, you know that so Christ fills it with life. So that we who are sons of life can still pass through it. I remember what I was going to say, and that is, there is one thing that I I like to tell uh, people in recovery. You know, um, there there is a caveat to the first step, in my opinion, uh, and that is that uh, while we say we came to realize that we were powerless, that powerlessness is limited. Because there is one way you can have power over it. Um, uh, there is one way you can have power over it, and that is to enter into sobriety. That is for your drinking to be completely off the table, to do a program of repentance, to do a program of recovery. Um, now, you may only get a daily reprieve or an hourly reprieve or a monthly reprieve. It may be an ongoing work, yes, but... You're only you, you only remain uh, at the whim of the bottle if you pick it up again. And if you do pick it up again, you only remain at the whim of the bottle if you stay off the wagon. You know, there's there's a number of people who like they've got 16 years, they have a relapse, and then they get another 16 years sober. I mean, those 32 years of good sobriety, right, don't disappear. Uh, but the reality is, it's like. You're powerless if you keep doing this, but it is within your power to stop. Now, it may not be within your power to stop alone. That's fair. That's true. That's why we have the community. But we were never mentioned to function that way. Uh, our, our, uh, out there in the wild, uh, wild west of Wyoming, I know all of you pride yourself as being ride for the brand rugged individualists. Um. But despite your commitment to living by the code of the West, uh, it is not so. We are we are meant for community. We are meant for uh, as communal beings, and which means which means that's where the solution is found. That's why repentance always involves coming back and saying, "I've sinned before heaven and before you. I make amends before God and before you." And I've said this before: the the prodigal. Like, if you read The Prodigal Son, I, I want to get back on your point about cognition because I think you had some more cool uh, linguistic stuff to bring up. But if you look at The Prodigal Son, think really hard and try to identify what his sin against his father was. 
I mean, just based off the text, not what you read into it. Because if you read what's in the text, it's not there. I mean, look at, look at the data. Just look at the data, not the lessons we're used to pulling from the data. Prodigal son asks for, asks for his inheritance early. The prodigal son asks for his inheritance early. He waits to receive it. He takes the portion that is given to him. He Once it's given to him, it's his to do what he wants with. He then goes and, yes, makes poor choices with it, but it's his money to make poor choices with. And then he alone suffers the consequences until he decides to return to himself and come home. Like, what sin did he commit against his father, really? Now, you could say, I mean, we draw we draw conclusions, right? We can say, well, you know, he was disrespectful, he abandoned him, he didn't care about him. Sure, there's all those things. His father also could have told him, no, I'm not giving you your inheritance early. He requested it. He made a request. He received what was given to him lawfully. He took only his portion, only his lawful portion, and he proceeded to waste it. But that was something he could do. He did it all legally. He did it all lawfully. But he also did the wrong thing. You see, this is where you can look and say, yeah, the guy didn't break a rule. He still did the wrong thing for sure. And he still has to make an amends and come back and say, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I mean, so like it, it, it becomes nuanced. Say, like the solution is in community. It truly is. Um, so despite being, uh, despite being proud Americans that, uh, our, our lone ranger syndrome is off the mark in this case. It's and entirely, you were, entirely. Yeah, t- tell me some more things about cognition though. Cause I feel like we skipped over some, some cool stuff you were talking about. Yeah. Um, here's a little, but I read this quote, uh, to you and, and recently to some people here at the church. It's from St. John Cashin on his uh, piece on pride. And this ties in very well with what you just said about the prodigal son. And St. John said, For while Satan believed that by the freedom of his will and by his own efforts, he could obtain the glory of deity, he actually lost that glory, which he already possessed through the free gift of the creator. And we see that in very real case, that what the prodigal son did was the abuse of pride. That I can go out and do this, now give me the money and I'll be great. And then, then he recognized, he, he knew and remembered, he came to his senses. He accepted and approved of something that he became aware of. That, that by his pride, by his hubris, that he had actually done the wrong thing. And when he became aware of that, amidst the slop of the, of the pig pen in his starvation and his filth. He repented because he became aware of the goodness of his father and his own failings. And he was willing to humbly know that he could return home and be received openly by his father, even if only as a slave. And, but, but look what it, it hinges on the same thing we're saying. So he has the epiphany. Like the text says, he literally, it says he came to himself. He has the epiphany, but he also had, there were a couple of different ways he could have responded to that epiphany. He could have said, well, you know, this is who I am now. Or he could have said, I've always been a bad seed. I was born this way. And I'm he bad was sprouted in the pig poo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like from the, day, from the day I was born, all the nurses gathered around and gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up said, leave this one alone. I tell you right away, he's bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. Like, he could have said that. I don't know why anybody would, but he could have. And it would have been thoroughly good had he done that. But he did not. He, he could have said that. He could have, uh, he could have said, um, I'm too far gone, right? Like, I'm just too far down the road. Uh, he also, if he were, I, it, where I think, well, I, this is, this is to me, this is the scariest option, what I'm about to say, though. 
uh, because this is the one that is the trap in our modern American context where we're so atomized. He could have just, instead of going to his father and to God and making amends, he could have just picked himself up from the slop and said, gone straight to God himself and said, Lord, I am sorry, and sought to amend his life on his own and make something better out of himself. And then when he was relatively stable, returned back to dad and said, hey, I came out okay. But completely skipping the humility, completely skipping the amends, completely skipping the reforming of the community and the real repentance that comes with coming to his father and saying, I've sinned before heaven and before you. He could have tried to find that softer, easier way, and that half measure would have availed him nothing. And I think that's the trap that waits for us as Americans because we look and go, it's between me and God. What does it have to do with you, old man? I'll come back when I'm a success, mildly successful dentist and, you know, we'll share a burger together. And eh, well, you know, everything turned out for the best, didn't it? But it misses the point, which is the restoration of that community, of that divine counsel in the home. Um, he, those are all options. He didn't have to pick the right option, but he did. So when we have that epiphany, how we respond to it is huge because it's not the only thing the prodigal could have done. He could have done several things. Yeah. And the, the prodigal images the appropriate response to coming to yourself. If I have lived and reacted in pride, the only reasonable option for the human being is when they recognize their sin to return to the communion of the Holy Spirit and God, to, to, to see the grace of God in, in being the object that, uh, that revealed that to us, that gave us that epiphany. But it also, that story is also kind of interesting in, in the life of a sinner because though, though if we repent and live, the community doesn't always have to want to receive us back either. Look at the brother. And you see that a lot with addicts. You see that a lot with people who, who continually return to their sin, like like a dog to the vomit, as the gospel says. That that people eventually, the community of humans doesn't want to receive them back, which is also a really disgusting thing that we that we as community do, because then it then it that can be very destructive to the repentant soul. It can be it can be destructive not only to the person who is repentant today, but it can be destructive to your future repentance, um, your future repentance. So the the older brother ends up a prodigal at the end. It says he refused to go into his father's house and he remained outside stewing within himself. Well, he's outside the father's house. You know whether whether you're on the front lawn or in the pig pen, either way you're refusing to go in. Um, you know. Uh, ha- off by an inch, off by a mile. It really doesn't matter that the younger prodigal was actually, the younger prodigal might've been less bad because he doesn't, you know, the older brother gets a direct invitation from his dad and openly refuses it and argues with him. The younger brother just left. He didn't disrespect the old man, at least not in the text. He just left. Um, The older brother like there, there's disrespect there. Yeah. I mean, so it's actually worse. Um, but in recovery circles, they'll tell you, you know, you're only responsible for keeping your side of the street clean. You know, one of the interest, most interesting things about the, uh, the 10th step where you go and you start making those phone calls. Uh, it, it's, it's funny. What's really interesting. If you work that step with a sponsor, as you should, if you're in recovery, is that they'll point out to you that um, it's about you making the amends. It is completely irrelevant how the other person receives it. So it's completely irrelevant whether or not they accept your apology. You're not really there. You're not there to get their forgiveness. You're there to make your amends. It's completely irrelevant how they react to it, which is why, um, so in the guidance for the 10th step, they'll tell you to make direct amends wherever possible, except when doing so would cause harm to others. 
So there's a whole lot of amends that you might want to make directly, but it would just cause drama and turmoil and hurt relationships. And so a lot of times you'll make an indirect amends or you'll even write out a letter to the person and burn it. Why? Because it's not about you getting some closure from the other person and it's not about them forgiving you. It's about you un- it's about you unburdening this without further burdening someone else. It's about making the amends. So um, the prodigal may not be received back. That's true. But look at that. There are, there are people at the party, though. And that's the interesting thing. When you turn back in repentance, there may be people who do not accept your humility. Um, but there will be people who do accept it. The real scary thing is what that does for your own repentance as the one who rejects them. Because now you find yourself in need of repentance. Now you find yourself needing a way back into the Father's house. Or if you don't right now, you may very soon. So say you've turned someone away who has an addiction or a a moral failure or whatever else. Well, how long is it before you've got a problem? You know, um, maybe this person has a drinking problem today. How long before you need, before your marriage is falling apart or one of your kids makes some poor choices and you need the support of the community to help get them on the straight and narrow. Like it's turning our back on someone who is genuinely repentant is the most short-sighted thing we can do because, uh, we're going to need mercy for ourselves really quickly. And we all want that to be available to us. It is the height of satanic pride to believe that somehow our lives will be above that at any given point. That is genuinely satanic pride. Yeah, and the thing that makes it genuinely satanic is because it flips on its head all that Christ gave us in the idea that in order for a human to live, there has to be humility and repentance. Metanoite. This was the message to repent. Y'all repent. Turn back from your sins. Right? So anything that flies in the face of that is satanic pride. And to just to requote that Cashin phrase is that he wanted to obtain the glory of deity by his own will. That, that, that is one of the most profound things that my feeble little human mind concise, I should say, is very concise because that is precisely what we do all day long that needs us to repent. Why am I addicted? Why why am I sinful? Why am I unforgiving? Why why am I hateful? Why am I proud? Because, because I'm trying to short circuit the process of repentance. I'm I'm no longer abiding in the divine grace. I've walked away to do it myself. I've gone to the foreign land, or I've rejected my repentant brother. But in either case, in either case, I'm refusing to abide in the presence of the Father and His love. And and I and there's and there. The, so you mentioned the sacrifice, right? Like, so who gets sacrificed in in humility and repentance? I sacrifice myself. I come to you and say, I've sinned before heaven and before you. When we choose. Uh, when we choose resentment and anger and a lack of forgiveness and a lack of mercy, we sacrifice our neighbor. We say, you must die. You must be undone. You must be canceled. You must be rejected. You must end. Not me. See, that, that's, and th- that, that's, what makes, that's what makes that even more satanic. It's like, hey, uh, death needs to happen here. Okay, we agree on that. What needs to die? Well, the one who's repentant says, I do. My ego. My, my, my fault, my failing, and I'm going to bring it here in humility. And the, 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 the prodigal really is dying before his father says, I have sinned before heaven and before you. Um, my, my state as your son doesn't even deserve to survive. Received me as a hired hand. Take me as one of your servants. And of course, his father receives him back completely. Um, but, you know, but he's willing to sacrifice what? His own glory, his own state, his own position. Well, as he and, should. He was the yeah. one in the wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but but look how the father responds to it. But he's but it's but it's a willing sacrifice. And but he's he's not asking anyone else to pay it. He's paying it himself. Is my point. You could say as he should, but he's willing to do it. Whereas the older brother says that unworthy brother of mine needs to die. He doesn't deserve it. 
You missed my sarcasm. You, oh. you, you missed out on my side. Now that that modern that modern cancel culture type of idea yeah. is like, you, yeah. well, of course you need to die. You're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> or or but yeah. Or that thing you hear your kids say all the time. It's like, it wasn't my fault. She did it. He did it. it wasn't my fault. Yeah. At which point it immediately becomes your fault. But I, I like how your quote from Cashin uh, dovetails back into the older brother because it's interesting where, where you point out where it says he lost that glory which he already had. You know, uh, the father reveals to the older brother, hey, everything that I have is yours. Like if if, if you haven't had a party with your friends around, uh, around a goat, it's because you didn't ask me for it. Everything that I have is yours. The goats are yours, man. When do you... Once this party with your younger brother is wrapped up, when do you want to get your guys together and eat a goat? We can do it. Um, everything I have is yours. But this brother of yours that was lost is found. He who is dead is now alive. Come and rejoice. I, so, so look at that. The glory, just like the devil in Cassian's quote, the glory that he had, what he possessed, everything that was the father's was his. But now he loses it. Now it's not his. He's outside the house. How can it? It might as well not be his. He doesn't have, uh, he has no purchase over it anymore. Through that pride, through not just pride, but willingness to sacrifice the other in the place of himself. He's like, now he puts himself outside of the glory of the grace that he did have. The glory of the riches that he did have in the father's house. Just like Cashin says about the devil. He lost the glory that he had. And now with the older brother, yeah, he lost what he had and everything was the father everything of the fathers was his well i mean not if you stay outside man it is such a and it it's such a remarkable and profound parable because it deals with both the person that that so many people in the christian church look at and say oh look at that sinner over there they're just a wretch god have mercy on them but but it deals equally with those who see themselves as being in the church, but by their unwillingness to forgive, by their by their judgment, they aren't abiding in Christ any more than the kid wallowing in sin somewhere off in another land. And the only thing that makes either one of them possess what they were endowed with from the beginning through the Creator is repentance. Otherwise, it's pride. Absolutely. That's 100% correct. But so I think, but again, it's, you have to have that. I think the, the point is though, you still have to have that epiphany. You still have to have that cognition that, and, and that cognition is, the cognition is the hard knowledge of your own failing, your own weakness, the hard knowledge of your own powerlessness before which you have to come to terms. Um, the, the prodigal has the epiphany, he comes to himself, what it literally says in, in the pigsty, and I am not worthy. I've, I've mismanaged what was given to me. I'm not worthy to be your son. Receive me as a hired hand. He makes a decision in the face of that cognition, says, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, the older brother has to come to terms. And it's like, okay, now I'm coming into that place of hard cognition. Uh, what do I do? I, I mean, you know, now, you know, the, the end of the parable, right? The parable ends with him outside. Um, could there be a continuation, you know, could there be a, a further playing out? Maybe, maybe that's not the point, but you're going to come to terms with the powerlessness of your situation and you got to make choices. So you're going to be powerless over a lot of stuff, especially like this week, you know, with all that family and stuff. You're going to be powerless over a lot of things. You're going to be powerless over a lot of people's opinions. You're powerless over how you look in their eyes, right? They, they, you may think you're, you know, me, you may think you've done a great job of, uh, of getting your life together and putting things back. And they may choose to still see you as a, um, as a screw up, as unworthy, as, uh, you know, whatever your latest drama and mistake was you've got no control over that you are powerless before that it's it's but it's what what others think of you really is none of your business 
as a wise man said to me on many occasions, really is none of your business. Yeah, you're powerless over a lot of things. You are not powerless, however, as to how you respond. So how do you go about responding in fidelity to the gospel and fidelity to repentance? How do you, how do you act in light of that? You know, the, the father in this parable we keep harping on, he's powerless. Like he, I mean, he, the man owned the whole estate. And you'll notice that both of these grown men, his boys, they come to him for approval. But he's pretty powerless. The younger brother wants to leave with his inheritance. He can't help that. The younger brother decides to blow his inheritance. Nothing he can do about it. The older brother decides to reject his younger brother's repentance in return and painfully remain outside the community of the family and the household, angry and bitter. And this man, for all of his possessions, completely powerless over all that. Um, but one thing he is not powerless over is how he responds. He keeps the door of mercy and love and community open to both of his boys. He invites them in. He says, come and rejoice. Everything I have is yours. Today we are celebrating your brother. But man, everything I have is yours. And your brother, we say, hey, um, put the ring on him. Bring the fatty calf. My son has been found. He, in, he, he, just like the prodigal, he has a lot of different responses. He could, he could choose to punish them. He could choose to reject them. He could choose to be angry with one or the other. He doesn't do any of that. He chooses mercy and love and forgiveness, and he chooses to keep open every opportunity for his household and the divine counsel in his household to reconvene and share a meal. That's what the father chooses to do, and he chooses to keep that invitation open. The older brother may stay outside. Um, the older brother may stay outside stewing, but it's of his own free will. The father never rescinded his. In the whole story, the father never rescinds his invitation. The invite's there. I may be powerless about whether or not you accept it, but you're powerless over how I show mercy and goodness and love, and you're powerless over my ability to invite. So I will invite your failed brother, and I will invite you, my beloved and new failure. And since you're both going to be a couple of knuckleheads, maybe you can come in and have some fatted calf together and like enjoy being under the same roof because you're both pretty ridiculous, and I love you. And maybe that's it. Like we're, you're not powerless to show that level of mercy and, and forbearance that you're not powerless over. And that, I think that is the nature of humanity that, that Satan would cloud over with his accusations. I may feel powerless over my sins and maybe by myself, I kind of am, but through the epiphanies of, of, the, the human psyche that allow us to recognize our shortcomings and allow us to see our failures and allow us to, to have these insights into our own souls. God has shown us that mercy and allows us to act on that mercy and then expects us to, to act with according grace towards others who are failing similarly or even more grossly or less grossly than we are. Isn't that the divine image? The, isn't that actually our ontology? The actual essence of our being is to be like the master, to, to be like the one in whom we were called to abide and possess that which he gives us by his grace? Or is it us ontologically to abide in our sins? You know, kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question, but where does God intend you to remain? Where does he want you to abide? Does he want you to abide under the heel of the devil? in the accusations of sin, in the accusation that you are something that you are not? Or does he want you to be an overcomer, more than an overcomer, and to abide in his mercy and his light and his grace eternally, to, to possess that which you've always possessed through repentance? Or to go on riding in your pride into the dark recesses of the wilds of Wyoming? Yeah. And I, I just love how, you know, closing, I just love how impoverished 
we choose to be in in choosing sin because when you look at when you look at the truncated community the lack of joy the disturbed prayer life and everything else like that comes from our bitterness and resentment and anger and lack of repentance like none of none, none of the things we call sin really add anything to our lives they take away things i mean even people who give into like say the the more carnal passions the number of diseases right that come from that takes away your health or you know the 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 you name it there's no sin out there that actually improves your life. It it truncates your world into, into until all you have left is this vice. So all you have left is this bottle, this prison. It really does that. Whereas, uh, I mean, and and that's that's the real trap, you know. It, it's we we accept that impoverishment where it, when like you said, you know that. Like you said about the 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 the, the riches of the grace that that he already had, he loses. The the psalm psalm one one eighteen says, you know, all things, O Lord, are your servants. And the prodigal son, the father, the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. Well, how many things is everything? Like everything is everything. It's all right, all of it. So there's no sense in, in, in living that repentant and that sober life and living that there's no sense of, of a truncated existence. It's like all, everything, everything I have is yours. But if you decide to stay outside stewing, that's all you get is the front lawn and, and, and anger. But if you'll set that aside, knucklehead, like everything I have is yours, man. Uh, so I, I think in our foolishness, we see it the other way. And in, you know, when we're, when we're caught up in our anger, or our passions or whatever else, um, it feels powerful, but we are left really limited. And, um, that, that's the tragedy of sin. That's the tragedy of a non-repentant life. And if we can come to recognize that and have that epiphany, and we can just return home and say, I've sinned before heaven and before you. And lay that on the table. There, so if we use the word abide like I used a few minutes ago, it's such a beautiful word because of the imagery that it gets gives. And Jesus likens it to the, to the vine, to the grapevine. Abide in me and I in you. But in the beginning of the prodigal son, all, everyone was abiding in the same home. There, there was a unity between them all. But what drove both sons, one to the far land and the other to out into the front yard, as you said, was their pride. And my friends listening, Father Michael and Father Joseph too, it, we, we, we sin because we, we mistake that there's something outside of the house that's of supreme benefit to me and to my life, that there's something out there that is better than what I had inside. That, but that by somehow leaving the fold, I'm going to be better off. And it's divine grace. I'm, I'm confident of that. It's divine grace that created humanity to be able to recognize that we've walked away in the first place because that, that prefix re means to, to see something that you've already seen before. So there, is it a defined reflection that we see? Is it, is it just what it is? I don't know. I think it's unique to each person, but the ability to see that you've gone away from where you should be is divine grace by itself. I would agree with you a hundred percent. And and that's why, that's why the the restoration of that community in repentance and in recovery is it's the end goal. Uh, so I think that's a good place to tie it all together. You know, uh, we're coming into we're coming into I think we're coming into moments that are very difficult. We're coming into family times that are tend to be difficult for people, and if we have the cognition that if that we too are a little ridiculous 
and we too have just as much need for grace and mercy. And then we can abide together and abide in community and extend that mercy a little bit farther and make those amends. And you may find it gets reciprocated from some very unlikely places. And that will be a welcomed gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, uh, Father Joseph, I think this is a good place to end it. Uh, I hope that we can at least abide in that love and abide in that humble spirit and uh, get to nativity with with peaceful hearts. One last thing. Uh, We've said this before, and the younger son had an all-daring faith that his father would receive him. And that even if he wasn't received, going back was better than staying where he was. And I think that I think that when we recognize that we're sinful, that that we have to have that all daring faith to act. Because if we don't act, if we don't get up off our butt and at least start moving forward, we will remain where we are. So that would be my encouragement to everyone listening. If if you're dealing with addiction, if you're dealing with sins that trouble you if you're dealing with a marriage that's failing or kids that drive you crazy staying where you are where you are is where the devil wants you and if you know people around you dealing with those things keep your community open because the the biggest lie of the devil is that you're the only one um no your marriage on the rocks or your kid being uh you know being a smart aleck or whatever you're not the first or the last you're not the only one and we all take a turn uh, but to your point, Father, because I love what you just said, um, to your point in, in deciding, hey, um, I'm not going to stay here. There is the saying in recovery circles, um, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. <laughs> keep moving. If you find yourself going through hell, keep going. You know, don't stop. Maybe the devil won't even know you're there. That's from a country song I heard recently. Oh, my goodness. Ah. Uh, that was also thoroughly good. Um, so anyway, Father Joseph, thank you so much. Uh, it was a Have a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. And may the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always. Keep fighting the good fight. We'll see you next time on the battlefield.